Please turn with me in your Bibles. Now I've got a little tricky, uh, well, a little trickier than normal today because we're looking at two passages. One is in Malachi chapter 3. It's, it's a short book, but if you turn to Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, and just go back a page or two, you'll be there. And I will also be looking at a passage in Colossians, which is a parallel passage to what I've been preaching on in Ephesians. Last week, you may know, uh, I was speaking about Ephesians. We were looking at redeeming the time and also our tongues. But I spent most of the time talking about time. I wanted to spend a little more time this week speaking about our tongues. So we'll be looking at a passage I think will be helpful in this regard. Malachi chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, and then Colossians three sixteen. This is God's word. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. This passage in Malachi comes at a difficult time in the history of God's people. And it's not going to get better anytime soon. Soon after Malachi speaks these words, the Old Testament is ended. There will be no more scripture, no Savior born. There will be not just a silent night, but a silent 400 years before a Savior is born in the little town of Bethlehem. But even now, God's people are suffering. They have returned from exile, but the few that returned met organized oppression 
and poverty. It literally took a miracle just to get the basic walls rebuilt. And Judah remains at this time in Malachi just one province, a minor province out of more than a hundred provinces in the mighty Persian Empire. Even more disheartening is that when they finally rebuild the temple, which was much smaller than it was before, God's glory did not enter it as before. It feels like an empty house. And people begin to question, is God still with his people? Worse than all the oppression and the poverty, there was a lack of true religion in Israel. Malachi tells us that even the priests were corrupt and despised among the people. We are shown in this little book that the people doubted God's love. They withheld sacrifices and praise from him and tithes from him. And they were even saying that it is vain and useless to serve God. Some were saying it's actually better to be wicked. In short, it was an evil age. But our passage is a fitting part of the end of the Old Testament. It is a message filled yet with hope and of love to the remnant who live in such an evil time. It also includes a description, something of a description of, for you, of how to love the Lord when it seems like almost no one around you loves him. How to stay faithful, how to love God in a, a culture that seems like it has fallen away from the Lord. Now this whole passage is full of hope and instruction for us, but today I want to focus especially on one aspect of it. How to love God in our words to one another. So brothers and sisters, consider this passage. Now if, if you were to read through this whole book, which you should, it, it would only take you about 10 minutes or so to read through this little book of Malachi, you would see from the very beginning that almost all of it is a series of complaints that God has with his people. It begins like this. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And so it continues with, I think, seven different questions as it goes through the book. The people speaking against God uh, and God bringing charges against them. You have stolen from me. How have we stolen? And you see that God has this long series of complaints with his people. And there is much of what is said. Almost everything that's said in here is about what the people are doing wrong. And almost nothing is said about what the people are doing right. It was, as I said, an evil age. But if you will search all throughout history, no matter how evil the age, God always has a faithful group of believers, and he will always preserve this remnant for himself. No matter how small his church is, or how evil the world is around them, around us, you will find that God's loving eye is always on his people. 
They are the apple of his eye in all of creation. Even if it's just Lot and his family in Sodom, or Rahab and her family in Jericho, or Noah and his family in all the earth, God never forgets them. Even when he's destroying the city, he rescues them out of it. He doesn't lose even one of his people. Now here in our passage, God turns his attention from the wicked to the faithful. They stand in stark contrast to the world around them. The wicked, you see in verse 13, have been arrogant against God. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You've said it's vain to serve God. See, they have served God outwardly, but inwardly their hearts were far from him. And now their words reveal what's really on their hearts. They hate serving God. They regret it. They say the whole thing has been a big waste of time. It's better to be evil. Now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Now the godly, instead of being arrogant before God, it says in verse 16 that they feared the Lord. Twice in verse 16, they're described precisely that way as those who feared the Lord. This fear of the Lord is also a theme in this little book. I think it comes up at least six times in this book. That there was many who didn't fear the Lord, but God did have people who feared him. The fear of the Lord is not some slavish fear or terror, but a humbling awe of God where we begin to understand how big God is, how mighty he is. And consequently, like Isaiah, we begin to see ourselves for what we really are. In the hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, he sees, I think her name was Esmeralda, and he said, I never realized how ugly I was until I saw how beautiful you are. That is the way it is for us. We don't really realize what we are until we see who God is. Then we see our sinfulness. Then we see our smallness. And that is the beginning of wisdom. Knowing that God is wiser than we are and that we need his help Slavish fear would cause us to run away from God, but this godly fear causes us to come trembling toward him because he has life and there is not to be found anywhere else. He has the words of eternal life. But our coming to him instead of running away is made possible only by the gospel. God himself has made this way for sinners who approach him. And this fear of the Lord is the soul of religion. 
The Bible calls it, as I said, the beginning of wisdom, because only then do we begin to see ourselves and the world and sin from the right perspective and to see that wisdom comes from God. And so we begin to look to him for that wisdom instead of ourselves. But what I really want to focus on this morning is what those who feared the Lord did. After all these things that have been mentioned in Malachi that seem bad, what they did seems hardly worth mentioning. It seems so small. But God records it for us. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. Isn't that interesting? Those who feared the God spoke to one another. It doesn't even say what they said. It just says the fact that they spoke to one another. But that isn't a small thing to God. In fact, three different expressions are used here to emphasize how this little act captured God's attention. Verse 16, it says, The Lord paid attention, and he heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. Now, the wicked have been saying it's a waste of time to serve God, that it's of no benefit. Maybe God doesn't even hear us. But this passage tells us differently. God notices. He listens carefully to our worship and our conversations. It catches his ear. Can you imagine for a moment as we meet together afterwards, after church, and we talk with one another, God is there. God is listening. Now, God hears everything, but he takes particular note of the conversations of believers. It's like God is everywhere, but he, is not, he doesn't manifest his presence in everywhere in the same way. God is inside the temple. He was inside the temple in a way that he wasn't outside the temple. He was on Mount Sinai in ways where he wasn't outside of Sinai. Where two or three believers are gathered together in his name, he is in our midst in a way different than he is outside of us. God also hears everything, but he has particular, a particular ear for his people. We have his attention, so to speak. It's hard to get anybody's attention these days. So it's amazing that the God of the universe cares, that he listens, that he hears, that he records it. Now, if you don't already fear God, this might strike fear in you. God hears your words. Every word. He always has. The Lord and Judge Jesus Christ did say, Every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Jesus said that, and he's the judge, so you know it's true. There's no way around it. He will judge you according to your words. 
But here in Malachi, what's being emphasized is that God is recording these words not with a view to punish the people, for they are in Christ, but to reward them. Now, God's people are not perfect. It may be that what they're saying is, after they've heard Malachi say all these charges against them, they're speaking about the evil deeds they've done. They see that they're in trouble and they're repenting. I don't know this because it doesn't tell us, but they fear the Lord. And God sees that they're not perfect, but he has pity on them. He spares them. Verse 17, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. This is not the language of someone who's being rewarded for their greatness. They're being spared even though they are sinful. It is compassion and pity. God sees here that his people are flawed and miserable, but God regards them as sons. He looks on them with great love and pity, and he spares them. They are nevertheless precious to God. He says, they will be mine on the day that I prepare my own possession. Now this word possession is used to indicate a king's personal possession, his particular treasure. He owns the whole kingdom, but there are some things that belong particularly to the king, his own clothes, for instance, his jewels, his crown, and so on. That is the word that is used to describe God's people here. God owns the whole universe. He owns all the nations, but the church, that is his particular possession, his special treasure. If there was a fire and you only had a moment to grab something from your house, and that, that's your particular treasure that you would carry out. When the universe is destroyed, the particular treasure that God takes hold of and saves that's his people. That's, that's what's most special to him. This little remnant, almost lost in the midst of this Persian empire, they are God's personal treasure. He owns them, he honors them, he spares them, and he takes them as his dear children. And there's a lot of comfort in that, isn't there? how merciful God is to his people, how he treasures up any little sincere thing that we do, and he passes over mountains of iniquity. One day, God will reward his people for things that you don't even remember. But he remembers. And even if you gave so much as a cup of cold water to one of the least of his, you will not lose your reward. There will be people who say, when did we visit you? When did we give you water? When did we come and clothe you? They don't remember. God remembers. And you will not lose your reward. Isn't that amazing? Now I want us to consider more carefully how the speech, about the speech of those who fear the Lord 
Brothers and sisters, our speech is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. It's one of the things that most clearly distinguishes us from animals. And yet, unlike the animals, as we read earlier, James told us that no one can tame the tongue. And how blessed are those who, by God's grace, learn to control it. Proverbs 21, 23, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. And we often have the the saying, I stuck my foot in my mouth. You know, we... We, our tongue has got us into trouble plenty of times. I'm sure everybody in this room can think of a time you said something that you wish you hadn't. Bruce Waltke, uh, one commentator, said, the tongue of the fool is long enough to slit his own throat. As, as small as the tongue is, it wields immense power for good or for destruction. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. I know I've said this before. You've heard it before. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Such a silly saying that children say. It's not true. The tongue can hurt far worse than sticks and stones can. Bones can heal. Words can crush someone for life. May God forgive us for all the times we've used our own tongues to hurt others, to bring others down in the eyes of our friends and those around us, to exalt ourselves over others, to spread gossip, to laugh at others. If you're anything like me, you know that you need God's mercy and help so that we can use our tongues for good and not for evil. It was the very thing that Isaiah was convicted of when he saw the Lord. Isaiah is sometimes called the Shakespeare of the Old Testament. If anybody would be proud of his mouth, it probably would be Isaiah. When he saw the Lord, it was, the, it was that thing in particular that he was ashamed of. He was a prophet. He was a very good writer. And yet, he was ashamed of his mouth when he saw God. And he knew that he lived among a people of unclean lips. But God, you saw, was willing to purify his lips in particular. The coal from the altar. Christ's sacrifice applied to him. Sin and his iniquity was taken away. Let us also cry out to God for forgiveness and for purity. Now, we are not told specifically what these brothers and sisters said, but whatever it was, it stood in stark contrast to the wicked world around them. Others were saying, it's useless to follow God. Surely they were saying that it wasn't useless. They were encouraging one another. Now, speaking distinguishes us from the animals uh, and very clearly, but it also distinguishes the righteous from the unrighteous. There's no surprise there, really, because your words reveal who you are. 
Spiritually speaking, the tongue is connected directly to the heart. And the words reveal exactly what you, what's on your heart. We know this not just in, in the church, but even outside in the world. When someone speaks just a few words, we can all often guess where they're from. I knew I saw Marie Lani. I didn't know her very well. As soon as I started speaking to her, I knew Brooklyn, Manhattan, somewhere in New York. It was, it was quite clear. Our accent gives us away. It reveals who we are. We get, begin to get a sense when we talk to someone, whether they are educated or uneducated, whether their speech is clean or corrupt, whether they build themselves up and tear others down, or whether they're humble and build others up. We get a sense of what people are really interested in, what they think about, what they value. Our Lord said this clearly. Each tree is known by its fruit. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. That is why we are justified and condemned by our words. Our words reveal our hearts, what we really are, what we truly love and treasure. So what is it that you find yourself always talking about? What is it that fills your mind, fills your heart, and overflows into your words? It might reveal things about you that you didn't even realize. Here in verse 16, it says that these believers esteemed God's name. That is, they thought about it and they valued highly every, everything about God who has revealed, everything about what God has revealed himself to be. No doubt, they consequently spoke with one another as they were probably a rather lonely remnant in, this, in that world. They, comforted each other. They spoke about God's promises. They spoke about, hopefully, the coming Savior, the Christ who was to come. They spoke about all the wonderful things that God has done for them. There's actually wonderful promises in the book of Malachi that God's name would be glorified all over the world. So no doubt they encouraged one another. No doubt they praised God. If you turn back to Malachi chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, you'll get a little sense of some of the things that the priests who feared God were to talk about. God says, He revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. And unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned back many from iniquity. This is about those priests who feared the Lord. But some of this should be characteristic about the speech of everyone who stands in awe of God's name. True instruction was on his mouth, and not unrighteousness. People were made spiritually better by his words. The words of Christians should be such that people find that they are somehow made better 
just by speaking with us, by being around us. Not that we always have to be teaching one another, which could be a little bit exhausting if everybody's trying to teach you all the time. And we are to bridle our tongues. But, and we are to be more quick to listen than we are to speak. But to speak, as Ephesians 4 says, only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. You probably experienced this yourself at times when things were hard and someone came up to you and said something that made all the difference. Now our words flow from our hearts like streams from a fountain. But when God saves us, he removes our heart of stone and he gives us a new heart. Consequently, the words that flow from that heart should change. If our hearts change, what does that mean about a Christian's words? His speech changes too. He's no longer just like the world, and you really can't hide it. I, I try to speak Chinese uh, sometimes when I was in Taiwan, and everybody knew that I, had a, I spoke with a southern accent, a very weird Chinese accent. And I couldn't hide it. For a Christian, it's like that. The more a Christian walks with God, the more we are to speak with a heavenly accent. And people should know almost right away, this person is different. I don't have time to go into all the detail about the good ways we are to use our tongue. We saw some in Colossians. But here are, in brief, a few things that should define the Christian's conversation. It should be edifying. And Christians should love to meet and talk together. We have the same love, the same spirit, the same goal, the same destiny, the same Lord. Psalm 119, 63 says this, I am a companion of all those who fear you. The mature Christian loves to be around other Christians, loves to speak with them, those others who fear the Lord. Now today is one of the very few times we get during the week where we have separated from the world, where we can be together with those who love the Lord. So I encourage you, don't just use this opportunity to talk about sports to talk about movies, work, politics, vacations, and things that are of value, but are of less value. I'm not saying you can't talk about any of those things, but we are called to encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sometimes it makes us a little bit uncomfortable if somebody probes at all. Not in a bad way, but just says, how is your walk with the Lord? What has the Lord been teaching you lately? Yeah. How can I encourage you? How can I pray for you? Something beyond just, how are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. See you next week. Yeah. 
And we have a, this chance to encourage one another in our walk with the Lord and in our fight, our mutual fight against sin. If you don't talk about these things with other Christians on the Lord's day, then when will you ever talk about them? And we are not to talk simply about theology in general, but personally. Psalm 66, 16, Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell you what the Lord has done for my soul. That is a mark of maturity. Our verse in Colossians 3.16 gives us instruction how to use our tongues for teaching, for, for admonishing from Scripture, for singing, for giving thanks, for worship. Brothers and sisters, your words flow from your hearts. and God has given you new hearts. But what was the heart that he gave you? It was his own. It's his heart. A heart that comes from God. God unites us to Christ. He puts his spirit within us. And that means our words, the words that come out of our mouths, are to be more and more shaped by the words that have come out of the mouth of God. We are to hide God's word in our hearts and to have his words abide in us. And if his words abide in us, you will bear much fruit. We are to receive it in faith and love, we are to meditate on the things that are said and to learn to esteem God highly. Then our speech will be conformed to Scripture. The best advice for us about how to use our tongues for good is given to us in Colossians. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's the key. You know, my daughter Leah is just starting to say her first words. Sometimes when you speak to her, you'll see her mouth, you'll see her focus on your lips, try to mimic what you're doing, say apple or whatever it is she's learning to say. It's amazing to think that our Lord Jesus learned to speak the same way at once. He learned to speak just as we did. He had to copy his father's mouth. But not only did Jesus watch and copy his earthly father's lips, he also listened especially carefully to his heavenly father, and he copied his lips. Isaiah wrote of Jesus in Isaiah 50, The Lord has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. How did Jesus get the amazing words that he used for so much good? They came into his ear from God, and then they came out of his mouth. He spoke God's mouth. He listened. He had the ear of a disciple. God gave him the tongue of a disciple. He listened to God's word. He considered it. It became part of his heart. And then it came out of his heart on his lips. Brothers and sisters, we must learn the same way as Jesus. If you are to bridle your tongue and speak to one another in a way that delights God, listen to how God speaks. 
Live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then every word that proceeds out of your mouth will come into conformity with his. I pray that the Lord would cause his word to dwell within you so richly that every time you speak, God hears more and more of the heavenly accent of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts at the source that you might change our lips, that we might be a blessing to others, that we might pray for one another, that we might confess to one another, that we might encourage one another, that we might worship you. We pray, Lord, that you would overlook all of our faults and help us to use our lips for what you created them for, to honor you, to glorify you, to enjoy you forever. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.